the reason people voted leave in the first place, so many millions of people, was not because of the customs union and the single market. It was because they believed in democracy and they felt they wanted to return some agency to their lives and they were unhappy at the interference of the European Union and they also wanted to hit back at the at the UK elite who had ignored them for so long. And, you know, they wanted to restore a sense of place and a sense of belonging and community to the nation. And no one really in any position of power is, is talking about that. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Embury. Paul has been a firefighter for more than 20 years. He served on the Executive Council of the Fire Brigades Union, but he was rather unceremoniously relieved of his position after he spoke at the Leave Means Leave rally in Westminster earlier this year, alongside me and others. The FBU said that any Labour activist who attends rallies with people like Nigel Farage were a disgrace to the traditions of the Labour movement. Paul was removed from his position and banned from holding office for two years. He appealed, but he lost the appeal. Paul has also been national organiser for trade unionists against the EU. He is an outspoken and tireless critic of the European Union project, and he frequently and articulately makes the case, the left case, for Brexit. He writes for Unheard magazine. He is a defender of freedom of speech, and he's involved with Blue Labour, uh, the movement that seeks to return Labour to its traditional roots in work, family and community. He also seems to irritate all the right people, which is always a good sign. Paul, welcome to the show. Good to be here. I want to start off by asking you about the FBU situation. I mean, for two reasons. Firstly, just to get to the the roots of the specifics of it, what actually happened and why it happened, but then just to broaden it out into what this tells us about where trade unions are at, where the left is at, and what's happening with the left more broadly. So just to kick off with the basics, so it will strike a lot of working people in particular as a bit strange that you have a trade union, uh, and considering the trade unions and the left were, for a long time, very Eurosceptical and often at the forefront of making the case for removing Britain from the EEC and then from the EU, it would strike people as strange that now you have a situation where a trade unionist can effectively be punished and banned and cast out into the wilderness for speaking at a pro-Brexit rally. So can you tell us how that came about and what exactly happened there? The pro-Brexit pro-democracy rally took place on the 29th of March, which was, of course, the, the day that we were supposed to leave the European Union originally. Uh, and by that time, Theresa May's government had asked for an extension. And so a big rally took place in Westminster to put pressure on the on the government to get us out of the EU as quickly as possible and to uphold the democratic decision of the of the British people that was made in in 2016. And it was a it was a very good rally. It was very well attended. It was a cross-party rally. There were a number of speakers from across the political spectrum, people on the left, people on the right. But the main theme of it was, look, democracy needs to be defended. People are angry uh, and it's about time that the, the mandate given in 2016 was delivered upon. Um, so I made a speech at that rally and it was, I would argue, a pretty non-contentious speech in many mm -hmm. ways um, from a from a trade union position. I think I said pretty much the right things in terms of um, 
you know, the reasons that drove so many people to, to vote leave in terms of a lack of democracy, lack of agency over their lives, the impacts of austerity and deindustrialization, and people felt the, the a desire to, to fight back against the system. But within it, I, I was specifically critical of leaders of the labor movement who I felt were in some ways trying to to subvert the democratic vote um, mm. and to, to stop Brexit from happening. Um, and I said specifically during the speech that that those leaders, and it was specifically the leaders of the Labour movement I aimed my criticism at rather than the Labour movement itself. I'm a proud member of the, the Labour movement itself. Uh, I said that I felt that they had taken the, the side of the establishment over the people and they really needed to, to do an about turn pretty quickly. And that was the incriminating mm. statement. It was from that that a charge was levelled against me. A complaint was made by the General Secretary of the Union, an investigation took place and a charge, a charge was levelled at me that in making that specific criticism, I had prejudiced the interests of the, the Fire Brigades Union, which in 2016 had, had campaigned for a Remain vote. And as a result of that, I was uh, I was kicked off of the National Executive and banned from holding office for two years. Um and it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely unfortunate because I've been a proud official and member of the union for, for over 20 years. And it is very, very clearly um, an attempt by the union leadership to muzzle a dissenting voice. Now, there are, of course, a range of different views on Brexit throughout the trade union movement. I accept that there are many people who don't agree with my position, but I think it's right and proper that we have that debate um, and that we, we're able to express our arguments freely. And the interesting thing about making that speech um, was that I actually made it in my own time on a Friday evening. It wasn't made during my working hours for the FBU. There was mm. no reference to the FBU during my speech or when I was introduced. Um, I made the speech on behalf of a group called Trade Unionists Against the EU, with, with, with which I've had a long involvement. So, you know, I think the union's decision um, was, was crass. I think it was stupid. I think it's backfired pretty spectacularly on, on the leaders who made that decision. Um, but there we go. They're going to they're going to have to to deal with that. Mm. As you say, their justification for what they did is that you made this specific comment criticizing the leaders of the labor movement, so they could then say that calls our reputation into question and so on. But more broadly, do you think it was you were being made an example of? And so, because one of the, as you say, it's backfired, and I think one of the impressions people have got from this incident is that um, Brexiteers, leavers, are not welcome in certain parts of the Labour movement and it will be made clear that they're not welcome and action will be taken against them if they speak out of turn. So there seems to me to be a far broader dynamic behind it than simply this one sentence in your speech. It seems to have been much more an attempt by certain trade union leaders to establish the um, importance of remain in their movement as against those who would push the trade unions towards leave? I certainly think that's part of it. And the interesting thing about my union is that it has always had a very rich tradition before now of encouraging open discussion and debate um, and encouraging members and officials to to voice their views, even if those views didn't necessarily accord with the agreed union line. And all officials at some point, including recently, uh, have have exercised their right to express their views freely. So it's the first example I can think of in my time in the in the Fire Brigades Union where somebody has been treated in, in so 
uh, rigid fashion and severe fashion simply for expressing their own personal their own personal belief. And I do think it probably taps into, as you say, a, a wider sentiment across the labour movement and across the left, where you know these views around Brexit um, are simply not welcome. Uh, and I think the staggering thing about that, in many ways, is it's it's a complete about turn from where the labour movement, or certainly a large chunk of the labour movement, was not that long ago. Um, in fact, EU scepticism was very mainstream inside the labour movement until fairly recently. If you, I mean, if you go back to the the, the referendum in seventy five, I think the research shows that a majority of, of trade unions um, were actually in favour of the of the the, the no position uh, in that referendum, um, and a large number of, of labour MPs and other activists across the labour movement. And you know that that was that was drawn from a very strong and clear belief on the left that the EU was ultimately an explicitly anti-socialist institution, mm. which was an institution which which worked in the interests of big corporations and the banks uh, was what many um, trade union leaders would describe as a, as a capitalist club, and actually whose laws and directives in many respects were inimical to, to, to trade union beliefs. So, you know, and, and that's something that has intensified over the years. So, you know, things around public ownership, um, not being able to nationalise the railway system, uh, whilst we're inside the EU, things like subsidising manufacturing and other industries, there are restrictions on that because of the, the laws around state aid. Um, things like the Stability and Growth Pact, which limits investment and you know almost abolishes the whole principle of Keynesian economics inside the inside the EU. And aside from that, you know the, the, the simple point about democracy having the ability and the right to have control over the people who who are making your laws and um, there's been an increasing erosion of, of national sovereignty and democracy in the time that we've been in the eu and once upon a time many many people on the left saw this mm. and they believed in the principles of democracy and self-government and socialism and, and being able to run ourselves rather than having technocrats in brussels run the country for us and you think of people like tony bem hugely respected on the left, a passionate European, always described himself as a passionate European, but was able to separate his Europeanism from from any sort of infatuation with the, the EU as an institution. People like Peter Shaw and more recently the late Bob Crow and Barbara Castle and Brian Gould, people who articulated a very clear anti-EU line and did so not because any of them were in any way xenophobes mm. or anti-European, but because they, they believed in their principles. And it is, it is disturbing, to be blunt, how so quickly so many people on the left have now almost become fanatical about the EU. Uh, it's, it's one of the talking points of modern politics. I think, um, I think that's absolutely right. And that, that takes me on to the kind of the broader story of the left that, that your case speaks to, but, and, and is this far greater issue of, of how this has happened. So as you describe it very well, we have a situation where the left for a long time was was at the forefront, or at least was was one of the most convincing articulators of the case against the European Union, precisely because, as Tony Benn and Morris Glassman has, have both said in different ways, it, it's, it's the most capitalist institution that has ever existed. I mean, it's written right into the heart of all its treaties and constitutions. That's what it values above all else and anything that gets in the way of 
the free flow of finance and capital and workers will have to be struck down. So to the left, that was clear for quite a long time. And they made the case for national sovereignty and popular sovereignty and for the democratic right of people to decide for themselves how their nation should be governed. The turnaround has been eye-swiveling. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we now have mm-hmm. a situation, and this is why I think your run-in with the FBU is, is very important, because we now have a situation not only where the left has changed its mind and said, well, we'll support the EU for various reasons, but where they've come to a, a conclusion that anyone who still opposes the EU is somehow a bad person, a xenophobe, a racist, a right-winger. You get called right-wing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, what explains the the dramatic nature of that turnaround? It's not only a change of mind. It's it's a kind of um, a, a situation where the left have gone from being sceptical of the European Union to being almost hateful of anyone who criticises the European Union. It's been a, a, a really uh, unprecedented shift, I think. I think you can probably trace the, the turnaround back to around the late 80s when, if you look at the left in this country and particularly trade unions in this country, they were very much on the defensive around that time. The Thatcher government was still in power. Our trade unions in the UK had taken a battery in. We'd seen the miners' strike, the NUM, which was arguably the the strongest union in the movement at the time. And, and Thatcher, Thatcher had, had pretty much destroyed the NUM by the time of the, the late 1980s. And Trade unions, you know, anti-union laws had come in, trade unions had lost a lot of their influence and couldn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And then all of a sudden, you know, the European Union came riding over the hill and you have people like Jacques Delors who addressed the TUC uh, conference in Bournemouth, I think it was, in the late 80s and said, look, you really need to join with us. You really need to be part of this social Europe, this workers' Europe. And... It was, I think, for for many on the left, the case almost of any port in a storm. Um, And they've never quite shaken that off. I think also it's probably connected to what I would say is is a hollowing out of working class representation in the institutions of the left and in in the Labour Party and the trade union movement. I don't think there's any doubt that over the last couple of decades or so, the left, particularly the Labour Party and the trade unions as well, have increasingly followed this sort of liberal, globalist, cosmopolitan agenda and the the people who wield so much influence on the left now are completely signed up to that. And, you know, the number of working class MPs, the number of working class people in senior positions within the uh, the trade union movement um, seems to have tailed off, and I think that's that's probably had a, an impact on the on the thinking as well. Mm. And so, you know, with these these leaders sort of pursuing this sort of, as they would call it, a progressive, internationalist, liberal, cosmopolitan line, the natural extension of that is well, you know, we've got this wonderful European institution, mm. uh, and we should all be part of it. And you know, I think many people make the mistake that because it's got the words in the title European and Union, they think automatically, yeah. oh, it must be a progressive, benevolent institution, mm. and one that they often conflate with Europe as a continent when the two are actually completely separate. People often forget that half of Europe's nations are not even inside the EU. It's only you know, it's only twenty eight, will be twenty seven 
um, nations inside the, the EU, half of them are not. So the idea that this, the European Union is synonymous, synonymous in some way with the entire continent is just wrong. So I think it's certainly the, the change in the ideology on the left where it, it is now much more of a movement which is, which is sort of more middle class, more liberal, more urban, um, more obsessed with youth yeah and all of that has led it into this into this pro-eu position and the the traditional position of many people on the left which is you know democracy self-government belief in the nation state belief in our ability to govern ourselves which is drawn from a, a sort of sense of patriotism and you know belief in things like nationalizing railways and some of those more old-fashioned socialist policies have, have largely been dumped You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I want to come on to the new left uh, that you just mentioned briefly there, because I think you have some very interesting things to say about particularly the, the, the woke sections of it. So we can talk about that in a minute. But I want to just on the broader left's drift towards sympathy with the European Union and with technocracy and globalism and cosmopolitanism and all these other things, which, in my view, I agree with you, they, they run counter to what we would consider to be traditional left-wing principles and, and positions. It strikes me that you made an important point there, which is that the decline of working-class representation, I think, plays a key role in that. Because what you have is a situation where the the further the left drifts away from the working classes, the more it clings to other mechanisms for affecting change. So that might be the state, and you have this over-reliance on the state for governing almost every area of life or this view that the you know supposedly socially aware right on european project will affect the kind of changes in our country that we can't get through the ballot box or which we can't convince people to pursue so i think there is a kind of it's, it's quite proportionate that the left's drift away from the people who made up its backbone for so long, the working classes, means that they become more favourable to this machine-like politics, which they think can then affect the changes that they want. But of course, what they lose in the process is everything they once stood for um, and the possibility of even realising their socialist ideas because the EU doesn't allow that to happen. And I mean, what I found really interesting recently was the the, the anniversary of the, the Peterloo massacre, mm. um, and how so many leaders of the the left, um, you know, waxed lyrical about it and paying tribute to the to the protesters who were fighting for democracy, etc. And in many cases, these are the same people on the left who are doing everything in their power for the most spurious reasons to subvert democracy. And I don't think we can underestimate what we've been seeing for, for the last three years and, and how the left, which traditionally would like to argue with some justification, um, that it has in the past been, you know, the driver for the franchise, the driver for, for you know, allowing working class people to, to vote and giving working class people a voice and representation uh, in parliament, um, are suddenly now trying to, to prevent 
the carrying out of the biggest democratic mandate in our history, we should not underestimate the implications of that and what it means for politics and what it means for the relationship between ordinary working class people and the left, the people who once upon a time they would have looked at as their voices in the in the corridors of power. And, you know, I, had, I, I say simply that, you know, millions of people in this country voted leave in 2016 because they felt that the political establishment had stopped listening to them. And that same political establishment has spent the last three years proving them right. Uh, and anyone who thinks that if the establishment gets away somehow with with subverting the vote, and I don't think it will still. I think Brexit will still happen, um, but it's a battle. There's no there's mm. no doubt about that. Um, but if it doesn't, and those millions are are ignored again, um, then it, of course it has all sorts of ramifications. Anyone who thinks that the, the second referendum and we vote to remain and and the, the the problem is then settled for a generation, I think people really need to think again because. I say that democracy is, in many respects, a pressure relief valve. Mm. And if you if you close that off, then then the protests don't go away. If you stop people exercising their their voice through the democratic system, the voice and the the, the anger and the resentment doesn't go away. It, it will just break out elsewhere. And I think the the likelihood of any successful attempt to subvert the vote we would be potentially some civil unrest um but i think the other danger and in many respects it is possibly a greater danger is that people will be so angry and bitter that they will just switch off from the political process completely um you will just see mass apathy in the country you'll see mass abstentionism and in the long term i think that has much more dangers for for our sense of ourselves as one nation for the democratic process for for civic society i was speaking recently to a relative of mine 22 years of age he voted in the the referendum for the first time first time he's ever voted in anything and he said to me very simply that if if the vote is not delivered upon he would never vote again um and you know we we people on the on the other side of the argument obsess about you know youth you know mm. youth have had their vote stolen almost as if youth is just this one homogenous block who all voted remain in the referendum actually there's millions of, of young people who who perhaps feel the other way and who will be very angry if if their vote is not delivered upon but on the on the wider point that that you mentioned yeah i i think there are i think there there are millions of people in this country often in what you would now call those sort of post-industrial areas mm. of the country, across the north, across the Midlands, people outside of the cities largely, people in, in small town Britain, you know, some, some of those sort of old industrial towns, and people in our coastal communities, which have been increasingly neglected, uh, who are feeling and have for, for some years that, that anger, at that sense of alienation and of not being listened to. These are people who have often suffered under austerity and deindustrialization and globalization and the impact of open borders, etc., and a, a lack of housing. And just feel that the, the establishment and the Labour Party, their party, the, the, the party they once upon a time would have felt tribally attached to, has just stopped listening to yeah. them. And these are people who not just stop listening to them, but actually treats them now with contempt. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I always refer to two incidents, which I think prove the point. There was the Gillian Duffy incident where here was a woman in the 2010 election, I think it was, uh, traditional Labour area, Rochdale, a working class woman who had always voted Labour and simply you know, saw the Prime Minister on the hustings and simply said, 
in not especially in temperate terms that she had an issue with the number of people who were coming in and whether the, the town could cope with it, etc. And she was dismissed as a, as a bigoted old woman. Um, and then there was the Emily Thornberry incident where she was campaigning in Rochester and Strood in the by-election and... She walked past a house where, okay, there was a white van outside and there was a St George's flag adorning the, the wall of the house. And she clearly thought that this spectacle was so odd mm. and so unusual that it was necessary to tweet a photo of it alongside the caption image from Rochester. Uh, and I, I, I think that shows the, the contempt that, that large parts of, of the party, the leadership of the party, who are sort of completely signed up now to that sort of metropolitan liberal cosmopolitan agenda have towards any concept or expression of working class identity or mainstream working class concerns um and i think it's it's a real problem and i think the debate there is a crucial debate to be had in our country and it's not happening at the moment about the desire of millions of people who are unheard who on the one hand yes, want a fairer economy and want the, the vast disparities in wealth between rich and poor to be closed and want a more egalitarian um, economy. But I keep saying to people, it's not just about that. Anyone who thinks that working class people are motivated only by a pound note mm. really needs to think again. And when you go to people with arguments about well, open borders are great because, you know, we think there's an improvement in GDP as if people are just going to say, OK, you yeah. know, I'll, I'll accept this massive transformation and, and impact on my life because you're saying I might be a tenner a month better off. It's almost a Thatcherite argument mm. though, that people are only interested in, in money and, and nothing else. Um, and actually what I detect that millions of people in some of those communities I, I talked about are demanding is a much more rooted type of politics where their sense of belonging and their sense of place is respected, uh, a communitarian type of politics that has uh, completely rejected the sort of liberal globalist cosmopolitan approach which they've been force fed for, for so many years. And until somebody takes account of that and the Labour Party tragically I'm, I'm a, been a member of the Labour Party for 25 years but the Labour Party is showing no signs of getting it it thinks all it has to do is keep hammering on about economic fairness and people will flock to it the, the Tories I don't think are, are getting it um, no other mainstream party is and, and for as long as these people continue to be neglected that resentment will just continue to build. Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, your Peter Lou point is a very important one, I think. I think one of the most grotesque sights of recent times was uh, all these Ramonas, all these, you know, cultural elite middle class Ramonas who um, have spent the past three years trying to overthrow the largest vote in history, then, you know, going off to the cinema to watch Mike Lee's film on <laughs> Peter Lou and crying, in, no doubt, in the in the aisles over the working class struggle for the right to vote. Uh, really summed up their lack of awareness and how morally repugnant their behaviour sometimes is. So th that's very important, I think, because in my mind, if if the left isn't about democracy, then what is it about? Mm. I mean, fundamentally, I know there are many, many other things attached to that, but everything springs from its commitment to democracy. And the left exists precisely to represent the people who had never been represented, whose voice had never been heard, and whose clout had never had any real way of of uh, uh, moving into the political sphere and affecting change in the political sphere. I think everything on the left is is fundamentally or, or ought to be fundamentally about democracy. And so the abandonment of that, I think, is quite chilling. So you talk about the Gordon Brown incident, the Emily Thornberry incident, and the rise of this new 
layer of leadership and um, uh, activists, um, m- most of whom come from middle class backgrounds, in the Labour Party who are now pushing a very different political agenda to the one that Labour pushed in the past. So I want you to talk about how much of a problem you think that is, because to, I, I've never been a member of the Labour Party, but it strikes even me as someone who's a bit sceptical of the Labour Party that what's happening now is particularly tragic because it does look not just now but over the past few couple of decades I would include new labor in this as well but I think what's happening now with the with the quite thorough colonization of labor by this layer of um, middle class woke cosmopolitan anti-working class activists often who will look upon working class community as un- unenlightened and backward and cling into their flags and and their stupid ideas how much of a problem is that? Can Labour recover from this? Or is it? are these end times for the party that, that started life as the working class party? I think there's a mountain to climb. And I think the, 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 the transformation of the party, which you correctly identify, I think it's something that predates Jeremy Corbyn. Anyone who thinks that Labour has, has only kind of, I wouldn't say abandoned its working class roots, but but tried to distance itself from its working class roots and, and embrace this much more sort of urban, liberal, middle class agenda. Anyone who thinks that's only happened with, with Jeremy Corbyn doesn't really understand what's been going on inside the party. I think you can probably trace that back to, to um, around the late 80s and then something that escalated during during the Tony Blair years. And I say that the, I mean, I, I, I believe, by the way, that, that for Labour to succeed in a general election, it always needs to build that coalition between its traditional working class base and a layer of, if you like, less tribal middle class mm. voters who are sympathetic to the left and think that if the Labour Party can demonstrate competence on the economy, you know, they're, they're willing to pay a little bit more tax um, and they believe themselves to be part of one nation and can be won over to the idea of a Labour government. So I'm certainly not someone who says, look, Labour will only be successful if it just concentrates exclusively on on the, the sort of old industrial working class. Uh, and, you know, we just completely reject anyone who's from the middle class, anyone with any sort of liberal sympathies at all. Um, I, I don't do that. It's important that we, that, that, that we appeal so far as we can to both, but it has to be a balanced approach. And the problem for Labour over the last 30 years is it has become so obsessed with one part of that yeah. equation to the expense of the other part of the equation i mean i i put it that the 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 labor party is all hampstead and not enough heart apple that's that's yeah. the, that's the problem now and it's a real problem for the party I, I really you know i have to be honest i don't see us getting back to power anytime soon unless we unless we understand very quickly uh where we've gone wrong and do something to to put it right i mean there's so many people i still meet in the party are, are still crowing about the 2017 election result and yes labor did much better than many commentators were were predicting but i have to remind people look we still lost and we're still in opposition after as it was at the time seven years of the 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 tories or the coalition government and then the tories in power imposing austerity um we still didn't manage to win an election in 2017 and actually for all the sort of jubilation of people in the in the party about the fact that we won places like Kensington and Canterbury where we hadn't won before and that's great it's great to win those seats but when you're losing places like Mansfield 
and Walsall and Stoke-on-Trent South and North East Derbyshire, the old mining constituency, you know, places that were, were real labour heartlands, you've got a problem. And if you look at the 2017 um, statistics, a majority of the C2s for the first time, now I know the C2 kind of ABC1 formula and all this, it's imperfect, I get mm. that, but it gives you some indication of where people are. And the majority of the, the C2 voted Tory. And in some of those old sort of northern and, and midland heartland seats, we saw a, a swing to the Tories. I mean, this is this is sort of in, incredible stuff. And I try and say to people, look, we are getting Brexit fundamentally wrong because if we think we're going to win our way back to power by being seen to subvert the vote of people who are abandoning us hand over fist in these communities, then we must be absolutely delusional. 35 out of, of the 45 target seats in England and Wales that Labour needs to win in order to win an election voted leave. Mm. Over 60% of Labour constituencies voted leave. 16 of Labour's 20 most vulnerable seats voted leave. If we if we think that we can just continue ignoring those people, um, then we're going to face electoral wipeouts. So yeah, I, I, I want to see a Labour government over the Tories. I'm a, I'm a trade unionist. I'm a socialist. Of course I do. But I think we have to be realistic and say that until Labour is able to reconnect with the millions of people it's losing, and we saw in the local elections and the European elections earlier this year when we lost seats in places like Bolsover and Sunderland and Darlington, where we should be romping home. Uh, anyone who thinks we're on our way to power anytime soon, I think needs their head tested. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. It's, uh, I mean, it's a fascinating period, historically speaking, for Labour and the Labour movement, because, and I think Brexit is is the root of a lot of it, because in many ways, Brexit was, I mean, all sorts of people voted for Brexit. We know there's posh people, poor people, uh, white people, black people, old people, young people. It was a mixed vote, but it seems pretty undeniable, if you look at the analyses, that the working class vote played a very significant and arguably definitive role in pushing it over the line and making it happen. And that's a vote that became more and more pronounced as the referendum campaign took off and during the referendum campaign as well. And I think it was incredibly decisive. And it was almost like the working classes saying, we're still here. We are still here. We still believe in our traditional values. We still believe in democracy. And we're going to express our agency. And we're going to say this is the way the nation should go. To me, it's it's entirely in keeping with some of the best traditions in this country, right? From Peter Lou to the Chartists to the Suffragettes and all those other movements in which downtrodden people stood up and said, I have a democratic voice and I'm going to use it. So it, it strikes me as as an incredibly important historic moment and then what you have is this really tragic response from sections of labor uh, particularly the newer activist wing saying well well you can't have that or we'll have a second referendum and you have emily thornbury dressed up like the european union flag saying oh, she, she does like some flags she <laughs> yeah. likes some flags not not the st george's flag but she likes the european union <laughs> that's flag. right so isn't that just too much of a conflict to be manageable? That's that's the thing I wanted to ask you because 
how is it possible? I, I agree with what you've said about the it's important for Labour to appeal both to its working class voters and also to middle class people who might have liberal leanings, but who are favourable towards certain Labour ideas. Labour has done that and sometimes done it quite well. But surely this tension cannot be contained within one organisation, a tension between a cosmopolitan elite who look upon working class people with contempt and think Brexit is effectively a fascistic act and ordinary voters who think Brexit is a, a chance to recover democracy and expect the political class to make it happen. How is it possible for those things to be held together in the same party? It's very difficult, but I would argue that the, um, those of us of, of my particular persuasion need to, to continue making the argument. I mean, there's been times in the past where you know, the, the the death of the Labour Party has been predicted, if you think, you know, the, the early 30s, etc., when it almost went out of business, and Ramsay MacDonald went into into the national government with the, with the Tories, and then in the early 80s, when we were pretty much annihilated by Thatcher, and, and people, you know, some people were, were looking for alternatives. Um, I always believe you have to be where the movement is, you have to be where, where the institutions that represent workers and you know I use the word represent probably a bit loosely nonetheless where where they are in terms of the their political arm in terms of you know where they get their representation in parliament and for me that remains at the moment nominally at least the the Labour Party but respecting that there is a huge battle to be had inside the party to to pull it back and to to recast it as some kind of proud voice of working people and that's you know that that's really difficult i i share the assessment about brexit and the working class it was a genuine democratic revolt mm. there's no question about that in my mind there were it was a huge democratic exercise the like of which we've never seen before 33 million people voted because they felt all of a sudden their vote was going to count in a way that it often doesn't they feel in general elections that they mm. could really affect change that they could really send a shock wave through the status quo that they could really shake up the political and economic status quo inside mm. this country and did it i describe it as something like a general strike we haven't had one since 1926 but it was it was something fairly close to it and um, what i mean by that is in the sense that people knew that if they voted leave and leave won, it would probably create turbulence inside the, the country. It would it would cause some turmoil. It would fire a shot across the establishment. Um, many of them would be, would be demonised for it. Some of them probably felt that, in the short term at least, it might even hit them in the pocket. That they that they might be a little bit poorer in the short term, but felt that it was a price worth paying if it made their political masters finally sit up and take notice of them um, in exactly the way workers do when they go on strike. They know it might hit them in the pocket. They know it's going to create turbulence in the organisation. They know they're going to be demonised, but they're doing it because they're hoping in the long run it creates something different. It sets new conditions. They might get a pay rise. They might get better working conditions inside their company. And it's something that they're prepared to, to gamble on. And I felt that that was the sentiment that drove much of the, the leave vote inside the country. And it was broadly, I mean, I have this debate with people on the left who use the most spurious 
research and statistics to try and pretend that um, Brexit was really a middle class vote and, mm. you know, most working class <laughs> people voted remain. It's complete crap, frankly. <laughs> if you look at the, again, you know, something like two thirds of the, of the C2s voted leave, the data shows that the further you went down the income scale, the more likely it was that people that people voted leave. Uh, if you look at some of the highest leave votes in the country, particularly particularly in England, they were in those areas that we've talked about. Those those poorer post industrial areas where people are really feeling the pinch, uh, the pinch in terms of you know pressure on local services and um, wages etc. And people were really looking for for a reason to to fight back. Of course, not every working class people voted leave and it would be wrong to caricature it in that way, but it was broadly a working class vote. Mm. And I think one of the one of the interesting things about the last three years where the establishment has, has just not got it is the the debate in Westminster in Parliament among the commentariat over the last three years around Brexit has f- obsessed around some of the more sort of dry technical issues relating to Brexit. So we're, we're constantly bombarded with, with talk about the single market, about the customs union, about the Irish border, about the WTO, the backstop and all this sort of stuff. And, and all of that's important. I'm not suggesting it isn't. But actually, it's not the reason why so many people voted leave. With the reason people voted leave in the first place, so many millions of people, it was not because of the, of the customs union and the single market. It was because they believed in democracy and they felt they wanted to return some agency to their lives and they were unhappy at the interference of the European Union. And they also wanted to hit back at the, at the UK elite who had ignored them for so long over things like, you know, open borders um, and deindustrialization and some of the things that were going on in their community and you know they wanted to restore a sense of place and a sense of belonging and community to, to the nation and no one really in any position of power is, is talking about that particularly I mean there are some people siren voices who are doing it I had a good conversation with with Stephen Kinnock um, the MP at, at Labour conference a couple of weeks ago and although I don't necessarily share his, his position on, on where we need to be going with, with Brexit. He and one or two others in the party, people like Gloria De Piero, the, the MP for Ashfield, are beginning to understand that, are beginning to talk about the divide that has emerged between a sort of cosmopolitan elite and, and a communitarian, patriotic, rooted working class uh, and ha- how unless the Labour Party starts to understand that divide and starts to address it, we run the risk of tipping into some sort of culture war. So I think there are people on the left who are who are understanding this stuff, um, but they are still small in number. Um, and for as long as the debate around Brexit, A, tries to, to push for a second referendum or find some way to subvert the vote, and B, just refuses to engage with the reasons that so many people voted leave in the first place, these divides and these problems are not going to go away. I completely agree with that. And I think absolutely right to call brexit a democratic revolt with a with a huge working class motor i think that's absolutely right and i think one of the frustrating things for me is when people because one of the things that anti-brexit leftists have a tendency to do is to say well we have to clean up all the underlying economic concerns that people have the austerity issues because that's the only reason they voted brexit and and that seems to me to be another form of, of of negating people's agency as if they can't possibly have decided that they voted brexit in order to restore democratic rights in order to make britain a democratic country again in order to make a political statement about 
the country and themselves. It's it, everything is always interpreted as a coded cry for help. And you know, mm. if we have a second referendum and and resolve the underlying tensions with austerity, then everyone will be happy again, which I find so patronising. But um, in relation to the newer left that's coming up, um, we can't avoid the fact that you wind them up, um, and um, which is a good thing. Spike Never. winds them up as well. And they are so easy to wind they're up. They're very easy to wind up. They're very uh, tense <laughs> and easily offended. You know, if you look at some of the Corbynistas like Owen Jones and Ash Sarko and some of those people, I mean, they, they don't like you very much. And I mean, they say outrageous things about people like you. So they will compare your slogans to, you know, the fascist cry of, mm. of soil and blood and all that crap Mm. but i think what one of the things i wanted to ask you about in relation to that section of the left who are unfortunately quite influential is the role that identity politics plays in all of this because that seems to me to be one of the rallying cries of this new middle class left is the idea that identity politics is everything and you know racial correctness or respect for transgender bathrooms or this kind of this feminism which becomes actually quite a policing dynamic and and wanting to control the relationships between the sexes rather than the more positive demand for female equality of the past all those new political positions which seem to me to run directly counter to class politics mm. and to a sense of common values and common beliefs and a sense that people can come together regardless of their background or regardless of their sex and regardless of their race if you have a vision of the nation and the community and and social solidarity so uh, how do you see identity politics and do you see it grating against the old left-wing view that social solidarity is a preferable way to organize society yeah it's completely inconsistent with the traditional position on the left that actually you want to build the widest possible consensus and understanding Mm. between working class people because in in doing that in building solidarity between people and and concentrating on you know what what unites people then obviously you're 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 stronger and there's more chance that you're going to be effective in in fighting back and this attempt to sort of force us uh, into our own little corners according to, to biological traits yeah. just seems to me to be completely counterproductive and by obsessing on on some of this stuff and fighting these constant identity wars you know whether it's around gender or, or whatever what we're doing is is creating barriers between people and you know I, I have an issue over the, the way the state goes around promoting its version of, of multiculturalism. Now, I, I believe passionately that you know human beings, whatever their background, whatever the colour of their skin, um, whatever god they choose to worship, and, and whatever you, you you treat people as they find them, you treat people fairly, and you you have that sort of empathy with people. But it seems to me that the way the state goes about it and the way people on the left go about it, it's almost like the the encouragement of separation and difference. We are encouraging you to see yourself as separate. We are encouraging you to see yourself as as different. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sort of trade unionist of, of many years and um, if you go into a room and speak to a workforce, you want to speak to the workforce as, as a group of people who have got that social solidarity and understanding between each other and it it strikes me that you know when when parts of the left embark on this crusade around identity politics and keep preaching to people about how different they are that 
kind of approach becomes much more difficult for, for people like me who are trying to who are trying to build some sort of unity because working class people if they if they listen to these ideas will instinctively see themselves as, as different and it's almost like this has become for for many people on the left this has become the battle mm. the identity politics crusade has become the battle the battle that they want to win and there's almost stuff around things like the need to get a fairer economy um has become secondary to that it has it has replaced class politics yeah. in many ways and i think that probably can be traced to what we were talking about before the the sort of transformation of the left over the last sort of 30 years really from being respectful and embracing that mainstream working class uh, opinion um, to one that now has become much more sort of metropolitan liberal class and uh, middle class and liberal and cosmopolitan in its outlook that the identity politics uh, agenda is a natural extension of that transformation I think. It strikes me that um, identity politics has nothing to do with left traditions at all. And as you say, in fact, runs counter the to opposite. them. Yeah, contrary. And it, it seems so clear to me that intersectionality in particular, that kind of weird new ideology, entirely grates against any possibility of solidarity. And what's interesting is what they do with class. So they, they reduce class to just another identity. So they will say... As intersectionalists, of course, we talk about class, but we talk about how it intersects with race and gender and transgender. And it all sounds very clever and academic. But what they're really failing to recognize is that class is different to all of that, because class is the social relation. It's it's the determining factor in many, many people's lives. And it is the basis upon which you can bring people together, regardless of all the other stuff. So the, the the continual downplaying of class or their ig- ignoring of working class people's concerns, I think, is is one of the most problematic steps that they've taken. Just want to briefly ask you about Labour Conference and the wokeness of it. So you wrote a piece recently <laughs> about how irritating and woke aspects of the conference were. I'm sure not all of it was, and it, how it can feel like an unwelcoming place for someone like you. So what what was that like? What did you encounter? Well, I mean, to be honest, I've, I've got a thick skin and um and uh, you know don't tell anybody but quietly i quite enjoy some of the criticism and flack it's uh <laughs> it uh it gives me a, a bit of entertainment but i mean look mo- most people at labor conference uh are, are pretty decent people who are, are fighting for a better world and i've got no issue with that but unfortunately large parts of, of the party just seem to me now to be completely unrepresentative of of much of modern britain and it was, I think I said it was, it was the, the combination, much of conference was a combination of the woke liberal middle classes with, uh, with a few sort of toy town revolutionaries flown, <laughs> uh, thrown in as well. It was, um, I said it was like a joint trip to the coast from the, the, the social services department at Camden Council and the University of Sussex Labour Club. Um, <laughs> So you know, but but there are there are still elements within the party, I think, who do understand that you know we can't we can't win, we can't succeed if we just appeal to that particular constituency. That we have a real real problem with the abandonment of the party by so many working class voters. Uh, and there were, to be fair, there were some fringe meetings. I spoke at, uh, at least one of them where these debates uh, were had um, and where people understood and articulated the case for, yes, a fairer economy, but if we're going to win, we need a return to, to communitarian politics as well. And I think, I mean, you know, much of the problem with Labour with Labour conferences is, is that 
the conference is is just talking to itself rather than talking to the country and you saw some of that with the with the debate around Brexit at the at the conference where the party just came up with this absolutely absurd position which is just completely unsustainable you know the 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 idea that you know there's going to be a general election we're going to win and then we're going to we're going to go back to the EU and try to and try to drive further concessions to get a better deal. I'm not sure how we're going to do that when we've already all but made it clear that we want to remain anyway, or certainly large chunks of the party are. What leverage do we have to to force better concessions out of the out of the EU? And then we say, well, then we're going to hold a special conference to decide what our position is going to be, and. At that special conference, we might decide to vote against our own deal that we've just negotiated. <laughs> I mean, it's an absolute dog's breakfast. And as a trade unionist, I've never known any example where you negotiate a deal and then go back mm. and recommend a vote against that deal. But these are the kind of contortions that the party is going through. And this is the kind of knots it's tying itself into simply to try to, to avoid implementing Brexit. At the same time, parts of the party think, you know, we can't alienate those millions who did vote for Brexit. So we've got to sort of have this constructive ambiguity, which they've had for the last three years. But now, clearly, the position is shifting largely in favour of Remain. Um, And I said it it was a bit like for the last three years with the Labour Party. It's a bit like they tossed a coin and instead of calling heads or tails, they sort of willed the coin to land on its edge. Uh, and it was never, it was never going to happen. And you could see, you could see it was never going to happen. And the poll ratings now, you know, the latest YouGov poll that came out of the weekend, Labour on twenty one percent, slumped a third behind the Lib Dems after nine years of, a, of the Tories in power. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's just really, really demoralising. But you know, there are elements within the. I, I said I spoke at a Blue Labour fringe meeting. And I said we were like recusants after the the Reformation, you know, preaching our own gospel um, against the authorities. It, it sort of felt that way. But but there are elements within the party who do understand that that, that, that there's a mountain to climb, but understand what we need to do to get there. Um, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. I think that's one of the tragedies, and even I can feel this as as a as a non Labour person. The opportunity for Labour to have made a clear radical appealing case for Brexit, you know, with Jeremy Corbyn and lifelong Eurosceptic at the helm, was such a, a an opportunity to grasp. It was it, it could have done wonders for the party. It could have really radically transformed its standing in the eyes of so many people. And it's and it's abandoned that. It's wasted that opportunity. I think it's really actually very sad. I think you're used to the phrase Toy Town Revolutionaries is perfect. And the the reason it is is because one of the things I find really funny about those people is that a revolt has taken place in this country, uh, a democratic revolt, a peaceful revolt, and an implacably anti-establishment revolt by the people. And they, these supposed revolutionaries, are, are now increasingly at the forefront of overturning it. So counter-revolutionaries is really uh, the more apt phrase for them in relation to Brexit. So my final question for you is in relation to Brexit, which is, you say you're still confident it will happen. What do you think what makes you confident it will happen and what do you hope will be the impact of Brexit beyond leaving the European Union? Do you think it will do something else to political life in this country? I think it will still happen because there's no real sense and no real evidence to suggest that the millions who voted for Brexit have have shifted their opinion in any substantial way. And for as long as those millions hold the line, um, I think it becomes very 
difficult despite their best efforts it becomes very difficult for the establishment just to 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 keep a lid on it and to say we're not going to do it i mean i've got huge differences with with boris johnson and i'm no fan of the man at all but i think you know there there is clearly now a desire among uh, among the government and among the cabinet to to get it done again there's no guarantee that uh, that they'll have their way certainly not in the short term but in the in the long term, I just think that, that such is the desire among those millions who voted leave to make sure that their democratic will is carried out, that they are not going to go away. Brexit should never be seen as an end in itself. I understand that, you know, even if we get Brexit, someone on the left, we're still going to have a Tory government in place. We're still going to have a, a Tory government that presides over an unfair and unequal economy that, that tries to cut workers' rights and, and all the things that they've traditionally done. Um, so I'm not suggesting for a second that life suddenly becomes a, a, a land of milk and honey after Brexit. And in fact, that's the reason why I've, I've never referred to myself as, as a lexiteer or mm. used the word lexit. Um, I'm not really comfortable with that word because that suggests that, you know, there's there's going to be a left-wing exit from the EU, which I don't think is the case. Um, but for me, it's about Brexit. It's simply about clearing the path to be able to do stuff that is more radical and better in the future for a Labour government to be able to come in at some point, hopefully, and to be able to, to carry out radical economic change in a way that it's restricted from doing in the EU. So I, I say to people that socialism before Brexit is impossible. It has to be Brexit before socialism. Um, but it, it's, it's not for me and never has been an end in itself. It's simply about creating the conditions for a more democratic, uh, better society in the future. Paul Embry, thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.